Hello, and welcome to Act Your Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are talking about The Fault in Our Stars by John Green, both the book and the film, with a special guest, Sam Morris. Hi, Sam. Hello. You wouldn't mind taking a second here, introduce yourself, and let's know a little bit about yourself and your particular interest in this book. So again, I'm Sam Morris, and I am an assistant professor of English, and I also coordinate a secondary English ed program. I'm responsible for putting new high school English teachers out into the field in a rural area in the Southeast. We have a lot of fun. This book is special to me because... Uh, it was my first academic article. It was the subject of the first academic article that I published. Um, there aren't a lot of things written about John Green yet. There's about to be a huge explosion. I kind of got there on the wave, and it's been really exciting. Great. We had you on back in the fall for a bonus episode. You attended the Virtual Y'all West conference. And at the time, we were still a pretty new podcast. I guess we still are. Uh, but we were brainstorming off air about books to cover here. And you had mentioned this one. And so we're glad that, you know, six months later, so we're finally getting to it, uh, especially to have your insight into it, too, will we'll be great. I'm really excited to, to talk about it. Before we get into the book, though, as always, we like to talk about what we are obsessing over this week. Tasia, do you want to go first? I read a couple of things this week. Uh, I read The Golem and the Ginny by Helene Wicker, which came onto my radar really recently, even though it's it's been out for several years, I think I think around a decade or so. Um, but it's going to have a sequel coming up in the next few months, I think. And it was really, really good. It was really beautifully told. Um, and the way all of these sort of uh, seemingly disparate storylines are happening and they're all kind of hurtling towards each other and everything's really interwoven in interesting ways. Just really, really lovely, I guess, would be the word that comes to mind. Is it YA? No. That sounds very lovely. It is. It really is. Lovely is just the word for it. It's not really a word I use very often, but that's the word that comes to mind for it. It's just really beautifully written. I loved it. Um, I think it handles just these kind of cross-cultural perspectives really nicely. Yeah. So there was that one. And then I also read, which was an, a new release that we got access to earlier because Barnes & Noble has put out the copies early, uh, which is Mr. Impossible, the follow-up book to or book two in the in the Dreamer trilogy by Maggie Stiefvater. And you know how, how we feel about uh, the Dreamers and the, the Raven cycle here on this podcast. So uh, definitely devoured that and have been internally screaming ever since. But we'll t- talk about that more in a future episode. Yeah, shouts to Tasia for alerting me that Barnes and Noble had that book out. I left my home in the middle of the workday to go get it, and it was worth it. But yes, we will be obviously covering that book on the podcast here soon. So that was also an obsession of mine this week. Sam, how about you? What are you into these days? You know, I, I look forward to having a lot more time to be into things pretty soon. After we watched all of the or as many of the Academy Award nominated films as we could mm-hmm. prior to the Academy Awards. Uh, It was like, well, we're tired of movies, so what do we start watching next? Uh, Tessa has been pressuring me to watch Lucifer for a long, long time. Mm. So just finished the first season of that yesterday. I I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm working on 
a conference presentation on uh, Becky Abertali's Creekwood books. So I just finished uh, The Upside of Unrequited, which is it's uh, Abby's cousin uh, in D.C. So it's, it's Simon makes like a couple of brief appearances via Skype. It's tangential, but I enjoyed it. I also read Kate and Waiting. It's her first single authored non-Simon verse novel. It's funny because I did not fill in my notes here for this section, but it's funny that you do mention uh, Becky Albertalli because I also read Kate and Waiting since the the last time we podcasted. Actually, it was my first of her books. I have this glaring void of YA books from the last decade that I'm like slowly catching up on on this podcast, this book included. It was a really fun one for me to start with as someone who did a lot of theater in high school. It felt very true, those feelings of waiting for the cast list to be posted and the drama behind the drama all felt very real. So I, I liked it a lot. Um, so that was a good book to read. Other than that, I feel like I've read a lot, but nothing super appealing. And I've just also needed to turn my brain off. And so like it's 2005 again, I've been binging Grey's Anatomy. And, you know, it's just giving me what I need right now. I fell off that show probably in season eight or nine in real time. Don't know if I'll make it through the whole thing, but I'm in season two right now. And it's really good. Good show. I fell off, I want to say, at the end of season four mm-hmm. in real time. And we just finished. In January, we finished. So we've been watching it in real time ever since. It's worth it. It's it's a totally different <laughs> show, but it's worth it. Yeah. All right. Well, those are all great obsessions. But well, let's talk about this book. I'm going to try to hold it together this week, which I'm always a crier in this book. Whew, really elicited some emotions. <laughs> so we'll see if we can do that. But we'll start first with a, a quick book summary here that Tage is going to read. I'm just going to say it. I took this completely from Wikipedia. Sometimes I craft them on my own. This one, it was there. It was good. And I took it. So thank you, Wiki. And on that note... Take it away. Hazel Grace Lancaster, a 16-year-old with thyroid cancer that has spread to her lungs, attends a cancer patient support group at her mother's behest. At one meeting, Hazel meets a 17-year-old boy currently in remission named Augustus Waters, whose osteosarcoma caused him to lose his right leg. Augustus is at the meeting to support Isaac, his friend who has eye cancer. Hazel and Augustus strike a bond immediately and agree to read each other's favorite novels. Hazel recommends An Imperial Affliction, a novel about a cancer-stricken girl named Anna that parallels Hazel's own experience. After Augustus finishes reading her book, he is frustrated upon learning that the novel ends abruptly without a conclusion, as if Anna had died suddenly. Hazel explains the novel's author, Peter Van Houten, retreated to Amsterdam following the novel's publication has not been heard from since. A week later, Augustus reveals to Hazel that he has tracked down Van Houten's assistant and, through her, has managed to start an email correspondence with Van Houten. The two write to Van Houten with questions regarding the novel's ending. He eventually replies, explaining that he can only answer Hazel's questions in person. At a picnic, Augustus surprises Hazel with tickets to Amsterdam to meet Van Houten, acquired through the story's version of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, The Genies. Upon meeting Van Houten, Hazel and Augustus are shocked to discover that he is a mean-spirited alcoholic. Horrified by Van Houten's hostile behavior towards the teenagers, Litovai confesses to having arranged the meeting on his behalf. Litovai resigns as Van Houten's assistant and takes Hazel and Augustus to the Anne Frank house where Augustus and Hazel share their first kiss. Later that night, Hazel and Augustus lose their virginity to one another in Augustus's hotel room, confessing their mutual love for each other. The next day, Augustus reveals that his cancer has returned. 
Upon their return to Indianapolis, Augustus's health continues to deteriorate, resulting in him staying in the ICU for a few days. Fearing his death, Augustus invites Isaac and Hazel to his pre-funeral where they give eulogies. Augustus dies soon after, leaving Hazel heartbroken. Van Houten shows up to Augustus's funeral to apologize to Hazel, but Hazel does not forgive him. Hazel learns that Augustus has written an obituary for her and reads it after uh, Ledevi discovers it amidst Van Houten's letters. It states that getting hurt in this world is unavoidable, but we do get to choose whom we allow to hurt us and that he is happy with his choice and hopes she likes hers too. The book closes with Hazel stating that she is happy with her choice. Beautiful. So I guess one of the things we were talking about before we started recording here today was that when I finished this book, I said, Tasia, I don't even know what to say in the podcast about this book because I feel like it's just so special that I just want you all listeners to just go read it because I I don't even feel like I have words to kind of do it justice. But I, So I guess then, since I don't have words, I'm going to ask you, Sam, as someone who has written on it, what drew you to focus on this book in an academic sense and what, I guess, in general, as someone who studies YA makes John Green in this book in particular kind of special? So uh, I'll give you a very unacademic answer and (laughs) I'll try to keep it short. So I read this book pretty much at rock bottom. I was the worst depressive episode I've ever had. And I've had a few. And I just, I don't quite remember why this was the book that I picked up, but it was. And the only reason I stopped is I had to go to therapy. Um, And then when I got back, I finished it. And it was, it was exactly what I needed to read at that time. Because, you know, even though, you know, as, as if you haven't read the book, you know, Tasia kind of filled you in. It doesn't have the happiest of endings, but it's it's very life affirming in in a way that isn't trite. Um, and I think John Green is trite earlier in his writing career, but this is not that. And you know, I just kind of kept that experience and added it to a couple of teaching experiences I had, so that a year down the road, when I was, okay, well, what are you going to do with your life now? Well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get this PhD and I'm going to write about young adult lit, you know, from a, from a literary, critical, theoretical perspective, because it has that worth. It can do things and we need not dismiss it. We need to find ways to incorporate it into the classroom more. And so when it came to start doing the writing, start doing the research and start doing the work, I started with this book because why not? And so it was, it was a, it was a journey. I've been on a journey with this book. Understandably. So it definitely, it's again, it's just a special book and it, it really is just as you were saying, kind of the best example of the thesis statement of this podcast and why we can love YA and how it can really speak to things that are just so universal and so complex. And it, it kind of makes me think about how in this book, there's the the quote from Otto Frank from when they go to the Anne Frank house about how parents don't really know their children. And he was so surprised that Anne had all these layers in her diary that he never saw. And I think that this book shows how teenagers can have so many more layers and have such 
quote unquote advanced thought beyond what anyone really can give them credit for. And on top of all that, having a really just insightful and beautiful look at something that is so devastating. I think you nailed it when you said that it was life affirming because I mean, it really is. It's, it's devastating to read and I can totally see how that might like when you're, when you're in a depressive episode, like one of like the, the dominating feelings and that is apathy, right? Like it's not necessarily feeling sad. It's feeling nothing. I, I defy you. (laughs) I challenge you to read this book and not feel something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big feelings from from this book, I guess, is kind of an understatement. And I think for me, I guess a good place to start and the biggest takeaway for me in this book is how it looks at cancer and, and people who are dying from cancer in a way that is really different than your typical cancer book and how it really challenges this perception of courage and fortitude in the face of of struggling generally but cancer specifically with regards to that this book which again we did watch the movie too is something i think the movie is really missing is how the book interrogates how we treat and look at people who are are dealing with cancer and dealing with the prospect of dying sooner rather than later yeah, I think something that the book does so well is is it would be so easy to romanticize this this notion of dying and and Augustus talks a lot about how he wants to die in like a heroic kind of way at a blaze of glory, but the reality of death is is something uglier and sadder and and undignified and you know, we don't we don't die. Most people don't die like that. And it would have been really easy for this book to go a different route. Um, which I think the movie did go in where it kind of shows hot boy gets cancer, hot boy dies of cancer, remains hot the entire time. Whereas the book, it's, you know, a hot boy gets cancer, a hot boy pisses the bed, hot boy uh, gets an infection, his G-tube and vomits all over himself, hot boy gets emaciated, uh, gets depressed, becomes defeatist and, and dies in the way that so many of us do in that undignified ugliness. And the fact that the book really went there with it and you know, it wasn't romanticized at all. I really appreciate it. And I wish the movie had, had followed through with that a little bit more. Yeah, no, that's, that's it. Exactly. I mean, that is what, what I think makes this book stand out in so many ways. And it is so, it is so sad, but then I also do feel like it is, I don't want to say necessarily hopeful, but it's not as totally just, you know, de- defeatist as mm-hmm. it it could be. I think the ending is just so lovely in terms of how Hazel, it just is thinking about how affirming it is to have this relationship and to, and how all of her relationships around her have gotten to whatever point they're at at the end. And I, I love all of that. I love all that. So, you know, a minute ago when you mentioned cancer books, uh, I actually, uh, when I, wrote about this, I, I cited another critic and, and she and I have, have talked and corresponded since then. So uh, Susan Honeyman has written about the dishonesty that really is uh, connected to childhood and adolescent illnesses, especially terminal illnesses, where we, we don't, it, it's two things. We don't 
tell kids the truth. And second, we tend to make it more about the adults, how the family feels. Um, she, she talks about how this dishonesty, uh, it dominates family dynamics, hospital conversations, social media, the rituals we have surrounding illness and death in the public, uh, sphere. And so, you know, that's, what's really good about this. And it's, it's the core of what I wrote about. This is, this is about how adolescents deal with illness or one of the ways that adolescents deal with illness. And of course, John Green's not an adolescent, but he does a pretty good job of, of tapping into some of these things. And that's, I think that's the thing that strikes me as very honest about this book is we're not putting childhood or adolescent terminal illness in the hands of doctors or families. We're centering it where it belongs on the child, or in this case, the adolescent, you know, the one who actually has the disease. Um, and Teja, I think you're right with the movie. We, we kind of get away from that more into aesthetics, you know, which is again, how we perform things in public. Yeah. One of the things I think I missed most in the movie, because I think it's one of the most important scenes that kind of get exactly at what you're saying, Sam, in the book is when Augustus's sisters and their families descend yes. on his house at the end. And they are just totally infantilizing him and totally just talking about, oh, you're, just, you're such a beautiful boy. And it just, you know, you're so strong. Yeah. And he and Hazel are just totally uninterested in, in any of those types of conversations. And the commentary on, on that, I think, again, is what makes this book ring so true, I feel, because it's how people react in the face of this horrifying thing, but it's not what children or adolescents who are su suffering need, and it's not what even adults, I think, want, and I, I think a lot of adults get that type of thing, too, uh, towards the end of life, and just to completely strip away that, I mean, the movie was was frustrating because, yeah, I think that is so, so special in the book. And I think, too, the idea of the, um, what do they call them in the book? All the, uh, the signs around Augustus's house, the encouragements. Yeah, are, I think they're encouragements. They can't have rainbow without the rain or and, and, and things like that. They're really there to comfort the parents and not. Exactly. Yeah. And so I do think too, and Sam, you talked about this a little bit too, is how it's about the par parents a lot of time. And, and I really like what this book does with kind of both sets of parents here. They both, both Augustus and Hazel have kind of different relationships with their parents and kind of, we obviously don't have Augustus's perspective, but he has these parents who like need those types of encouragements and platitudes. And, and at the end, Hazel, does not give the eulogy she had to plan for Augustus. She has the, she gives the eulogy that the, the, the living need to hear that his family needs to hear. So that's kind of what is going on with Augustus's family. But then Hazel's whole journey through this book has a lot to do with what her parents will do and what their lives will be like after she's gone. Yeah. I think uh, you bring up a really good point about these quote unquote cancer books being and stories being more about the parents and how they're dealing with losing a child. Um and and what what this book does with that because you see Hazel internalizing that a lot too. Like she worries about 
her parents, you know, offing themselves after she dies and making their entire lives about her and, and how that weighs on her, like her cancer being about them and their suffering, how that, how that weighs, how she has to carry that with her, knowing that, like remembering her mother saying, oh, I'm not going to be a mother anymore. Like how she, she also, she doesn't have to carry the weight of her own illness. She also has to carry the weight of her parents losing a child. And I wonder, I actually wonder about these kinds of novels, these realistic kinds of novels versus perhaps YA fantasy. I wonder if there's a difference here. I'm thinking back, not just about John Green, who, you know, has been challenged at various times. Like, how do you know what an adolescent's thinking? You know, you think about Becky Albertalli, who was a therapist for years for adolescents and then decided to, to take what she felt she had uh, and write, you know, books that are for adolescents that have adolescent characters, you know, um, that's a big thing in in writing about young adult or adolescent fiction at a critical or a theoretical level is can these books be anything but instructive of, of how to act? Can adults really have empathy with children and adolescents? And I think you I think you can. I I think generally speaking, empathy is very hard. I think we've learned over the last year that even those of us who have or say or believe that we have large amounts of empathy have been really tested. But, you know, that, I think that's what it comes down to at the end is, are these genuine? And you can spot a phony. You can spot a, you know, like, I, I don't want to, well, I will, five feet apart. Um, <laughs> you can spot them. You can say, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this one. But I really felt like The Fault in Our Stars had some degree of empathy there. I, I felt like it read very genuine and did center those characters. It didn't feel pandering at all, which is something that I think a lot of YA fiction can fall into where it feels like it's, Oh, this is what I think teenagers sound like. And this is what I think they, they think like it's, and it's very just juvenile and pandering. And, and this I think falls into the other category of YA fiction. That's um, really good for everybody to read. Everybody should read because it's, it's for everybody and it's not pandering. One of the things though, I think maybe a counter argument to that though is how Augustus is initially portrayed in this book. Uh, he is, he's pretentious at the beginning, definitely. And it's part of it is a facade that Hazel can kind of clock when he drops and he, she likes him much more when he drops it. But I think you kind of read and you're like, you know, many teens who, who speak like Augustus does, but that's not really fair because there's no monolith to the, there's no monolithic teenage experience. And I think that feels really authentic to Augustus too, because like I think he he's supposed to be like that. He's supposed to be kind of pretentious and watching him um get stripped of that as the book goes on, and especially as as he goes into, you know, in the end of the book where he's he's literally dying and you see all of those shields, all of those facades get ripped away from him and and how he deals with that. I think it's a really intentional choice. It totally feels intentional. And I agree. As you progress through the novel, you get more of a sense of, oh, no, like, this does feel really realistic in a way that it didn't seem at the beginning. And it also makes sense to me that teens who have been faced with their own mortality in a way that most teens have not, do start to think, obviously, more in a philosophical sense and try to absorb what they can in terms of some of these bigger issues and 
absorb things like books and they just kind of consume things. So they point where they have a more extended vocabulary than maybe some of their peers. I mean, we've got Hazel in this book who's studied so much that she's in college classes at this point, despite the fact that she's only 16, she's well read. There's all these things that go into both of their personalities. They're like, okay, yes, this, this makes sense that you are the, the way that you are. But at the beginning, it was like, Hmm. And I think, again, to bring up the film, I think that's one of the things that's kind of hard about it. I think Augustus is a little bit of a hard hair. doesn't translate to screen very well at all. It doesn't quite as well. I think Ansel Elgort of it all. Yeah, exactly. I'm saying he's had current issues with him. I, I, I think he does a very good job, especially as the, the movie goes on. Uh, but yeah, it is a little hard to see someone like Augustus brought to life because on screen because it, it I don't think it translates quite as well. I like ultimately that we do get these teens that feel less like the teens were conditioned to expect in a lot of ways. And I do as as someone who has observed someone who was a, a terminal child, I think that there are a lot of things that the book does really well in accurately depicting that, like the living out of the hospital lifestyle the carrying the going home clothes with you the the whole kind of joke that they have um around hazel's using her her wish or her genie thing um on disney world because she was 13 and so like (laughs) that's like a very real thing like that is super cliche like my brother got his make a wish and at six years old and used it at disney world so when i read that i was like oh yeah that's definitely a thing so I think a, a lot of care, like yeah. uh, a lot, a lot of care was taken into depicting that terminal lifestyle. And, and poking at traditional conventions about what we are kind of trained to think about what this experience should be like. You know, we haven't talked at all yet about an imperial affliction and how it kind of shapes this novel. But um, I like how in, in that book, Anna, the main character, decides that a, being a person with cancer who starts a cancer charity is a bit narcissistic. So she starts a foundation for people with cancer who want to cure cholera. You know, it, it's kind of all of these things are kind of shaping to kind of, again, poke at how we expect cancer patients to act and how we sh- should treat them. And then I think, Sam, I was trying to Google because I knew you had published on this, but I could not access <laughs> yeah your paper it was all behind paywalls and and things like that but was your your paper on i guess and saw that it was something to do with like language and how the book functions on kind of a different level with all that was that with respect to like the construct of an imperial affliction how it ties in with the novel or i guess what was that about okay really really quickly by <laughs> the way here's here's some words from our from our imperial affliction author uh i i were she better or you sicker than the stars would not be so terribly crossed, but it is the nature of stars to cross, and never was Shakespeare more wrong than when he had Cassius note, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. He continues, he says, easy enough to say when you're a Roman nobleman or Shakespeare, but there is no shortage of fault to be found amid our stars. And the thing about it is, is, you know, Hazel loves his language, but this book is and this is the central point of what I wrote, is that Green is really wanting to think about the ways that adolescents use language. So I say that, yes, Green is really concerned with 
cancer and terminal illness in adolescence, but he's also using cancer as a metaphor for adolescence in the way that it attacks you and takes away your agency and your power. Because we, as we know, you know, we've all been there. You, you don't feel like you have a lot of agency to make your own decisions, a lot of power. And so without getting into a big theory, there are two things to keep in mind here. And one is language is all about power. We, we construct language to, to create social dynamics, and that's all about power. And the two ways that we really do things uh, depends on how much power we have. If we have a lot of power, if we're in charge, we can use strategies. We, we have ways to live and ways to do things that use our power. Those of us who don't have it use tactics, which are short-term things that it's like guerrilla warfare, basically. Being an adolescent is a constant state of guerrilla warfare. And so what Green's writing about is language. So when, you know, two really good examples, or I'm sorry, I'll give you three. Three really good examples. The Republic of Cansylvania. That's Hazel saying, we have a world, no adults allowed. But she's able to come up with a, a phrase that is uniquely hers, and she can share it with other people. And that gives her power because it's a way of separating what she's going through and what they're going through from medical diagnoses and all those other kinds of languages. There's a time where she's, you know, on her phone and she just yells, what is this life? You know, which is like, you know, a, you know, it's, it's a teenager saying something cool. Her mom yeah. rushes it. It's like, Oh my God, what's happening? And she's like, no, I'm just, I'm fine. I'm just excited. Not everything's about dying. Okay. <laughs> and then the third one is the always thing. You know, Isaac throwing the fit and about, about, you know, his girlfriend said always. And so it turns into maybe okay, we'll be our always with her and Gus. And it's a way of subverting language and saying we can take language and we can make it something new. And you can see this all the time. Every generation has their slang. And the next generation's like, that is not cool. We are going to come <laughs> up with our own language, right? <laughs> This is, this is, and I mean, it extends beyond language, of course. You can see this on TikTok and lots of other places. But it's that whole thing about creating something that you're in control of, to, to feel that sense of control. And that's what's all over this book. I love that as a kind of, again, like next level of beyond of what this, this book is going in, a, a more, I think, nuanced example of exactly, I think, what Hazel and Augustus are going through particularly with, you know, Augustus's whole journey of wanting to avoid oblivion and he's and his obsession with that and how he can kind of take control of things. And Hazel's journey is different. It's more about controlling, I think, what was going on around her with her family, right? So I love that the, we get it on a, a kind of a different level here. And I love the idea that it is really just kind of a, a, a not a, a metaphor for adolescence and in a book where we we know someone loves metaphors here our boy Augustus loves a good metaphor and I, I love that the whole you can look at the whole book as as one big one in a lot of ways and that's I think probably why you know I was reading a little bit about how when this book came out people some people thought oh no we're not going to let this in schools we're not going to teach it in schools it's too much it's too heavy for these teens to process and go through. And it really has, again, multiple levels of meaning that 
be beneficial to adolescents, but then also, again, to us as adults and trying to look back and relate to teens in our own lives. I, I love it. So much going on here. I worked with a, uh, a teacher, a high school teacher, who had a copy of Looking for Alaska on her bookshelf in her classroom. It wasn't assigned. It was just like, you know, it was a classroom library, you know, where kids can check out books. The principal said, uh, you have to take that book home. So, I mean, the issue of of any of his books, including this one, I mean, it, it really happens. It happens all the time. I mean, since Angie Thomas, people are leaving John Green alone. <laughs> you know, who cares about, you know, mm-hmm. suicide and cancer? We have real problems. We need to get this book off the shelf. Um, but yeah, it's real. It happens all the time. Wow. I feel like every every generation has those books, right? Where they're they're out there in the world and schools are just totally unwilling to let kids. It's very ironic considering the subject matter of these books, you know, about not letting children have their voices and not, not believing that teenagers have any agency in their lives. It's, you know, somebody got hit over the head with the, with the irony bat pretty hard. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's, that's really frustrating. And I want to tell you real fast. Uh, I mentioned earlier that at the time that I wrote this, there was not a whole lot written about John Green or the Fault in Our Stars yet. One article that did exist that uh, was written was from a perspective that said that Hazel acts the way that she does because she has shut herself off from, quote, the wisdom of the past. And if she just listened to her betters a little bit more, you know, she might have been able to handle the situation a little bit better. And that was ultimately why this critic said we we ought not to be, you know, venerating this kind of book. Yeah, the, it's real. It's real. What you said is real. The faces yeah. Corinne and I are making just just so offended. Wow. Quote, we should not expect teenagers to venerate the past, but they can still benefit from knowing about it. So, you know, read those dead white oh dudes. My- yeah. It's good times, you guys. Oh, my God. There's, there's no better way to learn about racism than to kill a mockingbird. No, no, <laughs> nothing, nothing has been written since then that's any better. And it's written by a woman. What are you people complaining about? Right. I can hear it. I can hear it when I read so many articles like this. Oh, God. <laughs> I have... It's only a very uh, passing familiarity uh, with with John Green. Again, as I said, I have this whole chunk of books from the last decade in the YA category that I've completely missed. This being one of them, this is my first John Green, but I know that there's been a lot of um, interesting conversation about him and his ability uh, to to write particularly like female adolescent characters. I know Tasia, you had some notes written down on. Yeah. So um, I did want to talk about the John Green of it all. Uh, If you were on Tumblr in like the (laughs) the 2012 to 2015, John, there was, there was this whole like surge of like the, the tide had been very John Green is, is the best. He is the greatest YA author in history. And then this tide took just a sudden drastic churn where suddenly it was, you know, John Green was the most problematic author ever. He fetishizes teenage girls. He perpetuates the manic pixie dream girl. He And then Tumblr had this feature at the time, which was a very 
short-sighted feature uh, where people could go in and edit original posts or uh, to make it look like somebody said something that they didn't. And people went for John Green with that really hard. I think he eventually left Tumblr because of it, because he couldn't literally could not post anything without somebody uh, erasing it and then reposting something completely different, something horrible and offensive, and then attributing it to him. It was really bad. Um, I mean, Tumblr being Tumblr, that's just kind of the way things go. You can't you can't be too well liked, otherwise they will make sure to take you down several notches. But I think the thing about this is that it it stems from a place of people fundamentally misunderstanding what John Green was trying to do with these characters, uh, the the quote unquote manic pixie dream girl in particular. I'm not denying the existence of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in John Green's works, but I I think what he was trying to do with these characters, because these stories were were typically told from the perspective of the the teenage boy character who is like obsessing over this girl, and the whole point was that it was sort of a cautionary tale that these boys were you know following the trails of these girls for for these crazy journeys because they're expecting the, these girls to be exactly that they're putting them on a pedestal they're expecting them to give them give their lives meaning, bring them adventure, help them find themselves when really these were just real people with real flaws that had nothing to do with this teenage boy. But, um, you know, I think misinterpretation on Tumblr is not the first thing, first time that's ever happened. So, yeah, I think we have kind of a problem in giving people the the grace of saying i know that i know what you're trying to do you you didn't do it very well but you tried mm-hmm. and and that's a different reaction than what happened on tumblr i i th- i think his manic pixie dream girls and i do think they're that in uh alaska and margo from paper towns yeah uh, those are they're not good. Um, I don't like his, it's on YouTube, uh, his defense of, you know, those two characters against the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. I don't agree. I've, I've written about this. It hasn't been published yet. Uh, I'm actually going to a virtual conference where one of the people presenting is a doctoral student, an international doctoral student, who's writing a dissertation on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl and is coming to talk about these characters. And I'm really hmm. excited and interested in what this person has to say, but that's part of what makes the fault in our star so good. He realized, hold on. Part of the problem here is I'm telling the stories from the wrong perspective. Right. Exactly. I it, I am. Tr- I'm not trying to do a manic pixie dream girl, Tasia. It, it's exactly what you're saying, but it's getting lost in the translation of the narrative voice. So let mm-hmm. me just Let's just cut that out and go straight to Hazel. Uh, Turtles All the Way Down is a success in the same way because, again, your narrator is the actual character. She She's not an object. She is now the subject. Yeah, I think that's exactly yeah. it. It was a problem with uh, the point of view character. And you can see here, again, in, in the hands of, I guess, a less evolved writer. I don't want to say in the hands of a lesser writer, because obviously this was an evolution that John Green went through, but you could see how Hazel could veer into that territory very easily in this book, and she doesn't. And it- and Augustus, too, I think. The male version of the Manic Pixie, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, this pretentious uh, kind of bro-y, like, 
guy, but um, watching watching Augustus get stripped of all of that as the book goes on is is what makes makes it so good. It makes him not fall into these kind of like ridiculous archetypes. Like there are some books that deal with like mental health and and death and stuff like that, um, where that male character is very much that weird archetype that I, I couldn't get behind. But I think this one does it much better. I think that's really interesting too to look at Augustus as potentially veering in that way, especially when he has these more grandiose uh, aspirations. I guess again, avoiding oblivion, being a hero. You know, he talks at one point about you know when they're playing these video games. I actually really like how this book uses video games, where he's trying to be very heroic in a way that he can, given his circumstances. Uh, but he's like, okay, even if I got these fictional. Uh, hostages in a video game one minute that could lead to another minute. It could lead to all of these things. And at the end, you know, again, in a more typical book, Hazel might have this big realization at the end of, oh yes, what, what Augustus was trying to point towards. That's the goal here. And yes, like it doesn't, you know, no one's going to be in oblivion as long as you remember. And it could be very hokey and it's not. And she does evolve in some of her thinking on some of these things, but not in a way that is so, um, I guess, like, like so overly positive and so like grand theme with like with, mm-hmm. with ribbons on it. You know what I mean? It's it's much more subtle than that, and I appreciate that about it. It's a good book, guys. Very interesting. <laughs> it's a good book. Well, one of the things then too I want to talk about because I think this is maybe like the most controversial element in a lot of ways about the book. And I say that just from, as I always do looking at Goodreads afterwards and like filtering through reviews. And one of the things that, again, John Green, you talked about having to come to his defense about things. Um, one of the things he's had to try to come to the defense of is this Anne Frank <laughs> house scene and the kiss in the Anne Frank house scene. And I wanted to talk about it because I think that uh, there's, def- it's definitely <laughs> worth, it's a choice. Reading a little bit. It's choice, yeah. So I, I told Asia about this off air. I, I liked it in the book. Fine, it did not particularly bother me in the book. It, it didn't bother me in the book. I think part of it is because I have been uh, lucky enough. I went to Amsterdam, so I loved when they went to Amsterdam because I could visualize it. But I had also been to the Anne Frank house, and I know exactly kind of the layout of things and where they're going. And one of the things I really disliked about the movie is that this kiss happens in the attic space where the family lived. And that was very hard to see versus in the book, there are many rooms removed and you're away from this, what feels more like a hallowed space. Yeah. They're in like an actual museum space, right? When the kiss happens. Correct. Versus in the, and in the book, they've had a lot of discussion and you get Hazel's internal thoughts on her, her journey up those stairs. So Applause aside, I did not like that element. (laughs) Clapping was, it took it to a place it didn't need to go. Yes, it didn't need to. But I do think I liked how it went in the, in the book. I don't think there's one right way to be respectful. I think that Hazel's observations during that scene, you know, I, as she's climbing, I kept thinking I owed it to her, to Anne Frank. I mean, because she was dead and I wasn't, uh, and so I should go up these steps and see the rest of the world she lived in those years before the Gestapo came. And then she and Augustus have discussions about, about the fact that she, she died right before liberation. And, and, and so they, they're talking about it. The film strips all of that away down to nothing in a way that made me really uncomfortable. 
I did think it was interesting too. I was reading about like the film reaction versus the book reaction here. And a spokesperson for, for the Anne Frank house had come out and said, we had not seen the film, so we can't comment on it. But in the book, it is quote, a moving and sensitively handled scene. So that's not obviously again, ultimate validation, but that's helpful to know. Um, but I don't know what you guys <laughs> wanted to say about, about all of that, because it's, it's divisive on the internet for sure. <laughs> For my part, I, I agree with you completely. Um, the clapping was unnecessary in both instances. One other thing I, that I didn't like about it in the book was as they're making out, you're hearing Otto Frank's like talking about his daughter in the background, which felt weird. Um, that's not the soundtrack that I want to make out to. But um, yeah, I think in the book, it was it was handled in a way that made sense to me in that moment that that's what they were doing. In In the movie, it felt very twee and appropriate yeah oh and then afterwards too the next day in the film when they're at the at breakfast with hazel's mom she's like oh how was it and augusta's like oh yeah it was awesome was it awesome dude like <laughs> no like I, and that's a, not the way i would phrase that screenwriter is what happened in the movie the the way the movie adapts this is it any worse than justin bieber visiting and saying I'd like to think that Anne Frank would have been a believer. I totally and forgot remember that about happened. that. I just... That happened. So, so we have a bar <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I haven't been there, but I have been to Dachau. I have been to Hiroshima. You know, one time I was, you know, in, in Germany with my parents, in Japan with a school group. But I can imagine. I, I remember how I felt in both of those places, and and I imagine it's it would have been a similar feeling at the Anne Frank house. But on top of that, I, I tried to imagine had I been with somebody as an adolescent that I cared about, you know, a, a girlfriend. Maybe trying to imagine on top of that the the terminality of the the illness and thinking probably what I would have felt was a sense of closeness to the person you know because when you see this the, the these these places that are again metaphors for 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 death and the worst that people have you i think instinctively would want to hold that person close to you right. you know and say thank god i have this person to fight against that not to mention that cancer is trying to kill me which is what these characters are dealing with you know so in in that respect, what else would they have done besides kiss? It makes complete sense. Now, when you turn it into like an object for people to clap at, it ain't gonna look good. But yeah. you know, yeah, no, <laughs> it makes sense. It, it does make sense, and I, it makes sense to me too that a young girl faced with terminal cancer would necessarily at the Anne Frank house draw parallels to her own life and and think about it in a way and for for better or worse in regardless of setting aside Otto Frank's intentions were in putting her her diary out into the world. That's kind of the role for a lot of young people that Anne Frank has taken on. I think over time is the comparison, right? For better, for worse, that's people are going to draw comparisons to their own, own life and studying it in school. I remember those were the questions we were asked. How does this make you think about your life? And I don't know if that was the intention in, in putting it out there, but so I think we're all kind of on the same page here. Just cut the applause situation. 
not not a good look. I did not love that. I think one of the last, I guess, substantive things before we get into some of our, our superlatives here, which I see we have just a ton of quotes written down. <laughs> this is a really well-written book. I had such a hard time editing down. Like I, I was like, I'm okay. So favorite quotes. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Buckle up guys. Yeah, Let's get into exactly. it. <laughs> and I think that that will really highlight again, what uh, some of the things that we particularly liked about the book, but I do want to talk about the Van Houten of it all, because that's a very interesting, again, choice and approach to, uh, I guess, a a hero character. I just kept thinking, never meet your heroes. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, is that the, is that the biggest takeaway here? I I do think he does uh, serve a very important, very important like reference point in the novel for them. And in terms of, I, I like when he says that grief does not change you, Hazel. It reveals you. Um, again, kind of poking at this idea that like suffering you're going to come through it on the other side and you're going to be just empowered because of it. And that's, that's not the reality at all. Um, and you can feel, you know, empathy for someone who is like Van Houten, who's dealt with unimaginable loss, but is a terrible person. Mm-hmm. I just, I really appreciated the role that his character played in this book because I think it's, Again, just a really good example of how we're kind of challenging some of what sh- "quote unquote" should be. I really like that they that they take some of his words that you know maybe in particular some that he's trying to use against them in his pretentious monologues about how you know they're taking advantage of their cancer situation and and this and that and he's he's trying to impart these horrible lessons on them and but they actually do take these words like some infinities are bigger than other infinities um and actually like like turn it around and use it for for good for an actual good lesson about what they're going through yeah i know sam do you have any van houten thoughts our triumphantly digitized contemporaneity <laughs> Big fan of the Thoris, that, that one. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, one of the things that, one of the things we teach as a, as a former high school English teacher, I, by the way, I haven't taught Anne Frank, but I have had to teach Ellie Wiesel's Night. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really interesting when you think about those things. But in, in a broader context, you know, one of the things we, we talk about is how much credence to give an author. An author writes a book, and then it gets into your hands, the reader. Which is more important? What the author wanted or what you got? Yeah. And, you know, teachers teach different things. If you're in an AP English class, for example, you are taught author means nothing. Author is dead. That is a theory, death of the author. Mm -hmm. And so Hazel is taking a different path, right? Really getting invested in 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 what he wrote you know augustus gets upset you know that's it that's it instead of taking it as an invitation to take control of the narrative and do what you want with it you know and and they get what they ask for when they try to make a connection with with uh, ben houghton he tells them what he thinks and that is the worst possible thing for them except where it's not because they do manage to learn and make something out of it yeah, yeah, I think that was really important too, because, you know, even as he's being just this massive piece of shit and and Hazel's still demanding, like, you have to tell, you know what happens to everybody at the end. You have to tell. And it's like, but is that the voice that you're going to trust to tell you what happens at the end? Like, this guy doesn't give a shit. 
this guy is he's so deep into his own neuroses and his psychosis and his drink and and everything else like is that who you want to look to for an ending to your story no take augustus take augustus and his offer to write this end for you that you want because what's going to mean more than that i just think it's really interesting too you know that so much of the book focuses on the the ambiguous cutoff ending to an imperial affliction and I love the ultimate takeaway uh, for everything you guys just said about the way that that book ends and how it it challenges Hazel's own, you know, her own struggles with what's going to happen to her own parents when she dies. And I love all of that. And yet, despite the intellectual side of my brain saying, oh, this is great. This is brilliant. I was so afraid that that was how this book would end. That it would end in the same way with Hazel just leaving off mid-sentence because that's what death is. It says that in the book, it's ending mid-thought, mid-sentence. And I didn't want that for myself. So I guess it was very hypocritical <laughs> because I was so terrified that that's what we were going to get. And uh, I'm glad we didn't, but I would have understood, obviously, yeah. if we had. I feel like if if John Green would have ended this book like that, it would have been a very like, hey. Like. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been like too meta. It would have been yeah, too on yeah, the too nose, like, but I was. <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> it doesn't mean I wasn't afraid of it, Tasha. No, I was too when I first read it. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Golly. Any other last big thoughts? I mean, we're going to read half the book to you here in just a second. <laughs> Does anyone have anything else before we move into some of our superlatives here? All right. Let's do it. We'll start here with favorite quote. Sam is our guest. Would you like to go first? We'll, we'll go around, around Robin. Here. Yeah, we've all got a lot. So let's just alternate. I managed to work most of mine in earlier. So I'm left Good. with two. Okay. The, the first one is, of course, the meat cute. Someone should tell Jesus. I mean, it's got to be dangerous storing children with cancer in your heart, which is like her reaction to, to Patrick saying, you know, they're meeting in a church where they're meeting in the shape of the cross and Jesus is in the heart. And then Augustus says, I would tell him myself, but unfortunately, I am literally stuck inside of his heart. So he won't be able to hear me. <laughs> I thought, but like Mike Barbiglia as Patrick in the movie was such a good choice. He's perfect to play that character. Uh, yeah, no, it was, that was a film choice that I, I liked a lot. Yeah, that's a good moment. Good introduction to these characters. Paige, what do you got? This one, which uh, just kind of describes all of our relationships with books. Um, sometimes you read a book and it fills you with this weird evangelical zeal and you become, or zeal, and you become convinced that the shattered world will never be put back together unless and until all living humans read the book. And then there are books like An Imperial Affliction, which you can't tell people about, books so special and rare, and yours, that advertising your affection feels like a betrayal. We've all got those books. Totally. All right. I had that one too. This is from when Augustus is telling Hazel that he lit up like a Christmas tree, Hazel Grace. Then after that, he goes on to say... The world, he said, is not a wish-granting factory, and then he broke down just for one moment, his sob roaring impotent like a clap of thunder unaccompanied by lightning, the terrible ferocity that amateurs in the field of suffering might mistake for weakness. And I I love that just on a macro level of challenging the idea that showing emotion is weakness. And then I just also love the prose um, in a micro level in terms of how it's worked in this book. There's so many lines in this book. Like we've talked about, it's just really beautifully written, but um, 
so many lines that I forgot I had first heard in this book, like just the classic lines. Um, but that one that you mentioned earlier that I lit up like a Christmas tree, Hazel Grace, for some reason, that one has always stuck in my head. I don't know why, but every time I've ever in the last eight or so years since I read this book, every time I thought about it, the first thing that popped into my head was I lit up like a Christmas tree, Hazel Grace. I think I was just that traumatized by it when I read it. Which Fantasia and I were both watching the movie last night texted how dare they change that line there was no reason for them to change that line in the mm-hmm. movie and they did and it was frustrating too it was it jarring up like a christmas tree don't no, no, don't change there's literally no reason to change that anyway sorry i, I just want to point out really fast about the movie um because i'd forgotten until just now recall that josh boone the director of this also directed the new mutants the movie oh, really? that finally came out. It's it's that's a double feature, by the way. If you had <laughs> <laughs> watch those two movies back oh, to back. Oh gosh, uh, yeah, I, I, it really yeah. <laughs> I just well, maybe I can blame him and them for some of like the choices with both of their characters at the beginning in terms of just really like reducing them to giggly messes in a way that was very offensive to me. Like Hazel's very dry and and sardonic and that's what's great about her and she's just she was so giggly in the movie <laughs> yeah oh uh, gosh and and i don't i don't want to blame um i i think shailene woodley and Ansel Igor, particularly in the back half of this movie oh the feeling they're both really really good so i'm inclined to blame directors for some of those choices at the beginning because whew, the back half of this movie mm-hmm. it, it was even without some of the broader themes that i think are really critical to what makes the book so special. Their performances are really, really good. And they still hurt my heart. So good job them. All, <laughs> All right, right, Sam. Sam. <laughs> Someday we'll finish this episode. <laughs> All right. I, I love this quote. It has nothing to do with cancer, nothing to do with death. However, if you're looking for another example of adolescents trying to take control of something, why are breakfast foods breakfast foods? Like, why don't we have curry for breakfast? I mean, seriously. How did scramble eggs get stuck with breakfast exclusivity? You could put bacon on a sandwich without anyone freaking out, but the moment your sandwich has an egg, boom, it's a breakfast sandwich. I want to have scrambled eggs for dinner without this ridiculous construction that a scrambled egg inclusive meal is breakfast, even when it occurs at dinner time. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it is great. That's a great way to, to think about it too, in terms of adolescents taking control. Yeah. Great. All right. Paige, what do you got? Mom hooked me up to a portable tank and then reminded me I had class. Did that boy give it to you? She asked out of nowhere. By it, do you mean herpes? That was a line that I was delighted to see uh stayed with the movie. I love it. Uh, this next is basically the whole scene. I'm just going to read it to y'all because it goes to, again, one of the things that I really loved in the book, which they totally cut from the movie, which is how I guess his family treats him towards the end. And his sisters are being particularly just nauseating. And this is what Hazel thinks at that time. And then she and I guess have the rapport back and forth. I resisted the urge to audibly gag. He's not that smart, I said to Julie. She's right. It's just that most really good-looking people are stupid, so I exceed expectations. Right. It's primarily his hotness, I said. It can be sort of blinding, he said. It actually did blind our friend Isaac, I said. Terrible tragedy, that. But can I help my own deadly beauty? You cannot. 
It is my burden, this beautiful face, not to mention your body. Seriously, don't even get me started on my hot bod. You don't want to see me naked, Dave. Seeing me naked actually took Hazel Grace's breath away, he said, nodding toward the oxygen tank. It's so good. It's another scene that I have entire, like just highlighted in its entirety. And it's so funny, but it also shows how they're fighting to um, assert their own autonomy there at the end, mm-hmm. right? Like, no, no, this is... These are the things that are important, not meaningless platitudes. Sam, do you have any other quotes you want to highlight here? Because we're still going. All right. One more quick one. The world is not a wish-granting factory. Deja. Oh, you know, the the classic ones. You realize that trying to keep your distance from me will not lessen my affection for you, he said. I guess, I said. All efforts to save me from you will fail, he said. Love it. Beautiful. Um, This is the line that ripped the very gnarly sob out of me as I was reading this book. My waterworks started um, earlier when Augustus, who is so sick at this point, decides that Isaac needs to take his moment of revenge against Monica, who totally never came uh, to see him or contact him anyway after he uh, had his second eye removed. And it's when they go and they egg her car. And in the book, Augustus says to Hazel, Hazel, take a picture so that when they invent robotic eyes, Isaac can see his his handiwork here. Uh, but then at the pre-funeral, when Isaac is giving his eulogy for Augustus, he says, but I will say this, when the scientists of the future show up at my house with robot eyes and they tell me to try them on, I will tell the scientists to screw off because I do not want to see a world without him. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. All right, Sam, you're done, but Tasia, do you have any other ones you want to highlight? I do, also having to do with eyes. Uh, how are the eyes? Oh, excellent, he said. I mean, they're not in my head is the only problem. I love Isaac. I, I do, think too. I think he's a re- we didn't talk about him enough, but I think he's a very necessary character. I, I this We'll talk about Swoon here in a second. This is a really beautiful love story, but I think for me, like I said, the waterworks started when it came to some of the friendship stuff here, too, and it's not just about Hazel. It, the, I just, the Isaac stuff really worked for me. It, it really kind of brought me down a lot, which is why my last favorite quote is when after Augustus has died, Hazel goes over to Isaac's and he has this fancy computer to allow him to play video games still. He has to, you have to give voice commands to it. And Isaac just says, I just like living in a world without Augustus Waters' computer. I don't understand. Isaac, me neither. <laughs> Golly. Uh, All right. I have a anyway. few more. I'll just try to get. All right. Uh, this is Hazel's dad. He says, that's what I believe. I believe the universe wants to be noticed. I think the universe is improbably biased towards consciousness, that it rewards intelligence in, parts because, in part because the universe enjoys its elegance being observed. And who am I living in the middle of history to tell the universe that it or my observation of it is temporary? Um, and then here's another really good Isaac and Hazel moment. I really loved their friendship. We talked about it a little bit because he he obviously started as... as um, Augustus's friend, but he and Hazel built their own friendship there too. And this is after uh, Augustus died. He says, Gus really loved you, you know, he said. I know. He wouldn't shut up about it. I know, I said. It was annoying. I didn't find it that annoying, I said. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's it. Just also a special shout out. I'm not, we, this, we would be here f- forever because I would start crying, but to Everything that Hazel says in her eulogy at the pre-funeral and everything Augustus says in his his eulogy thoughts at the end. Yeah. Just perfect. All right. Favorite character and favorite character arc. Sam. 
Oh, and 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 by the way, just just a quick shout out to uh, Sam Trammell who plays the dad in the movie. It's it's I do headcanon all the time, so it's nice that Sam Merlot from True Blood ends up getting to have a family. I feel so bad for Sam Trammell because literally I cannot see him as anything but but Sam Merlot. All I thought I was just watching like, oh, you're not a, a werewolf. And- <laughs> every I, every actor from that show, you know, I I see them as that character. Mm-hmm. It, it, totally. it 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 makes it really fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, as as far as character i mean hazel you know and and by the way it took me several drafts of this article before i stopped referring to her as hazel grace because (laughs) you know that's what augustus does so character arc so my favorite character arc is is the mom's character arc um you you know we talked uh, really it's about hazel and augustus but i i wanted to throw this one in there so hazel's mom the entire time has been working to become a social worker and they kind of spring this on her at the end because they're worried about how she'll react. And her reaction is, this is great. This is fantastic. Because she hates the social worker, Patrick, from the beginning of the book. She says, mom's going to become a Patrick. She'll be a great Patrick. She'll be so much better at it than Patrick is. That's an arc. That is an arc. Love yeah, it. when you find out that she's been studying this whole time to, yeah. you know, and, and Hazel's been worried that she is the, I think at one point she says she is the alpha and omega of her parents' suffering. But really, you know, they they are prepared to move on when she dies, but also to, to, to take her with them in that way, like her mom becoming a Patrick. I think it's really beautiful. Yeah. Totally. And shout out to Laura Dern, who is great in the film. And also just is apparently, I, I just love the connection that, She's basically played mother in many other movies to all of her big little lies castmates. She's played Reese Witherspoon's mom in Wild and then Shailene Woodley's mom in this. And it's just, it's incestuous and I love it. <laughs> Asia? Uh Yeah, it's, it's Gus and Hazel really for both, I think. Um, Hazel in particular for Ark because just she she starts off being you know i'm not depressed i'm not depressed and and going to group which i would also find just in, extremely depressing uh more depressing than depression uh but then she you know she lets people in she she continues her friendship with isaac after gus is gone um she learns never to meet your heroes uh i think yeah it's just really great yeah she learns that she is more than her parents suffering or anybody suffering. She's more than a tragedy waiting to happen uh, because Gus was more than a tragedy waiting to happen for her. I agree with everything you both said. I, if I had to choose, I would say that Hazel is my favorite character and Augustus has my favorite character arc, which seems counterintuitive, I guess, given his, his fate in this book. But I love his journey to, again, having these bigger, broader ideas. He wants to be just known and remembered on such a grand scale and then realizing how that's not the biggest takeaway here um, in the piece that he does find, at least on, in that respect by the end is um, I really loved and that was great. And because we always just love to talk about anything romantic on the podcast. Again, this is a, a beautiful love story and we, there are some beautiful swoon worthy moments. Sam, what do, you, what do you got marked down here? Well, I I believe a couple of minutes ago, you referred to the letter that Augustus mm-hmm. wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good one. 
Almost everyone is obsessed with leaving a mark on the world. We all want to be remembered. I do too. That's what bothers me most, is being another unremembered casualty in the ancient and inglorious war against disease. Hazel is different. She walks lightly upon the earth. Hazel knows the truth. We're as likely to hurt the universe as we are to help it. And we're not likely to do either. I love it. His letter was, uh, what an ending for the book. And the fact that Van Houten's like, I have nothing to add to it. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, Gus has nailed it. Um, Tasia, you have my actual one, so I'll let you read it. But I also wrote this line down because it's just, it's lovely and it's so true. As he read, I fell in love the way you fall asleep slowly and then all at once. That's one of those iconic lines that when I reread it, I was like, this is where that's from. It's, yeah, it's a perfect line. All right. So I'm in love with you. He said quietly, Augustus, I said, I am. He said, he was staring at me and I could see the corners of his eyes crinkling. I'm in love with you. And I'm not in the business of denying myself the simple pleasure of saying true things. I'm in love with you. And I know that love is just a shout into the void and that oblivion is inevitable and that we're all doomed and that there will come a day when all our labor has been returned to dust. And I know the sun will swallow the only earth we'll ever have. And I'm in love with you. Good stuff. We're going to talk again briefly, film versus book, the intimacy of staying with on the airplane where I think emotions are heightened. And I love that. That's where this comes in the book versus in the restaurant in the movie. Yeah. I also, I think it means less in the movie because in the book, Hazel is established as being like, nothing matters. Like we're all destined for oblivion, trying to leave your mark. Like it, it all means nothing. So I think it means more when he says it in the book, when he says, I know that love is a shout into the void and that oblivion is inevitable because he has been hearing Hazel talk about this for, for ages at this point. And in the movie, she hasn't talked about that. So it, I don't know. It doesn't have the same impact. Yeah. Book's always better. Yeah. It's the universal rule. And then do you want to read this last one too? Because it's a lovely line. Oh yeah. Oh, I wouldn't mind Hazel Grace. It would be a privilege to have my heart broken by you. Good egg that Augustus. Good boy. A good boy. Yes, the alternative title for this podcast. A good boy. A good boy. <laughs> we love a good boy. <laughs> anyway, well, we did it. This is a, just a really, really wonderful special book. I'm so glad we covered it. And we're so grateful that you were here with us, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. After so many months of talking about this, I, I'm glad we got to it. And, you know, we hope to continue to kind of pepper in some of these YA classics or newer YA classics as we go forward here and occasionally cover something other than YA fantasy, which is what we're always drawn to. And this is well <laughs> worth the, uh, the departure from our normal uh, lane of travel here. Before we go, Sam, tell our listeners where they can find you online or podcasts that you have, uh, where they can uh, connect with you. So I'm on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. I am also the co-host of monkey off my backlog. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at monkey backlog. And hopefully by the time this, this podcast is out there at monkey off my backlog.com. Whoa. (laughs) Very cool. And, uh, just so our listeners know that the format of, of monkey is really cool and that everyone reads or watches something that's been on their, their to-do list, their, their backlog of media to consume. It's a very clever format. Thank you for bringing that up. I just, we just recorded on Friday and I talked about uh, Charlie XEX's 
uh, her quarantine album, How I'm Feeling oh. Now. So that was that was what I talked nice. about last. It was fun. It's a cool. yeah, it is a really great premise for a podcast, and it got me to finally sit down and watch a season of Deadwood, so I could come on and talk about it. It was a lot of fun. That was a fun app. Asia, where can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at RagyCakes. I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore Reads. You can find the podcast at ActYourAgePod at gmail.com if you'd like to send us an email. Or we're on Instagram at Twitter at ActYourAge. And also, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic. We would very much appreciate it. Tasia, do you want to tell our listeners what they can expect from us in the next couple weeks here? Yeah, so um, next week, we're going to have an episode next week instead of in two weeks. So first of all, but it's going to be a special bonus episode. We're going to have a new debut YA author, Brandy June, on to talk about her upcoming book, Goldspun, which is a uh, Rumpelstiltskin retelling. And then we will be back in two weeks with a regular scheduled book episode in which we'll be covering... Shocker, Mr. Impossible by Maggie Steve Bonner. It's going to be, I think, just a lot of screaming. Yeah, we've got two weeks here to get our thoughts together. and mm, Good luck we'll to see us. How it goes. Yeah, good luck to us. We have no chill has, as has been established on this podcast many times. <laughs> uh, but on that note, again, thank you so much, Sam. We would love to have you back sometime to discuss something else. Yes. Uh, but other than that, see you guys around. Bye. Bye.